Micah preparing for Christmas. Charlie had a dream. Charlie had a hope. Listen to this. Charlie had a dream. In the West End of Derby lives a working man. He says, I can't fly, but me pigeons can. And when I set them free, it's just like part of me gets lifted up on shining wings. But on the day of the big race, a storm blew in. A thousand birds were swept away and never seen again. But what's wrong with having a dream? What's wrong with having a hope? Surely, as human beings, it's part of our nature to have dreams, to have hopes. We all have hopes for this world, for this life. We want a good holiday, perhaps we hope for that. We hope for our well-being, that we'll be well. We have hopes for our children, that they'll turn out well, that they'll know the Lord. We have hopes for a sunny day. And perhaps outside our own lives, we hope for stable government. We hope to move on. We have hopes for peace. We have hopes, don't we? And uh, we sometimes we have hopes that uh, for makeup, that that makeup will cover that dark patch or that wrinkle. Or as the founder of Revlon said, in the factory we make cosmetics, but in the store we sell hope. Make no comments today. <laughs> hope is a strange word. Most hopes will fail. Most hopes will fail. Interestingly, that if you talk to uh, among teenagers today, uh, the biggest hope that most teenagers have is to either be a YouTube star or to be a gaming star, to win, to win a gaming competition. This was the gaming competition for Fortnite, World Championship of Fortnite. If you don't know what Fortnite is, look it up, but it's nothing to do with the week after next. All right? <laughs> and there was World Championship for this game in, uh, I think it was Las Vegas, and the, the winner, just a teenager, wins $3 million, t- takes it away. But there are hundreds of thousands of kids who never got to that, comp- who never even got to the finals, their hopes were crushed. Most hopes will fail. But the common idea be- behind all our hopes is that something better is coming. There's something good around the corner. Today's not so good, but there'll be something good to come. That's the common theme in our hopes. In Charlie's case, he lost his bird. And when he got back, Charlie, we told you so. You're an old fool. Surely by now you know. When you're living in West End, there ain't many dreams come true. And Charlie replies, Yeah, I know, but I had to try. A man can crawl around or he can learn to fly. And when you live round here, the ground seems awful near. And sometimes it's like that. And the ground seems awful near, doesn't it? And the sky seems awful dark. And the weather seems awful wet. And we can't think of much tomorrow to look forward to. And sometimes we feel like that. A man can crawl around, says Charlie, or he can learn to fly. Wouldn't it be great to fly? Wouldn't it be great if all our hopes and dreams came true? Wouldn't it be great if even the impossible things that we might dare to hope for would come true? Even the things which are almost fantasy. Wouldn't it be great? Well, maybe it would be great. But there's nothing wrong with hoping for stuff, hoping that things might happen. 
that things might happen, but that's the wrong way, actually, of looking at today's passage as we start to think today about Christmas and the, what we call the Christian hope. Hoping that something might happen is the wrong way to think about this passage and Christian hope. This passage, we'll come to what that means, what is the Christian hope, and what do we mean by being hopeful. Are we hopeful as Christians? We'll come to that. Okay, this passage was written 800 years before the first Christmas, but it's somehow about Christmas. And just to give you a little background, in addition to what I said before, we're jumping in at chapter 4. It's on page 882, if you want to find it, Micah chapter 4. But uh, let me just give you a quick summary on what happened in Micah 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of Micah, because we're missing those out. In the first three chapters of Micah, Micah condemns Israel's leaders for being rich and growing fat off other people through deception, through actually through robbery. Micah condemns the false prophets of God who prophesy falsely, who actually prophesy for profit. If you pay us, we'll give you a good prophecy. If you pay us, we'll tell you something good's going to happen. Micah condemns them. And Micah also prophesies in the 8th century, start of the 8th century BC, that Israel and Jerusalem are going to be annihilated. They're going to be wiped out. He prophesies that as well. That's chapter 1, 2, and 3. But then the tone of the book changes in a breathtaking shift. Micah then looks to the future and sees a vision. The book hinges on chapter 4, and we'll jump in at chapter 4, where the tone of this whole book, the tone of this whole narrative suddenly shifts. Let's read it. Micah chapter 4, the mountain of the Lord. In the last days, so that's a phrase for the end times, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, God, will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So what's that all about? Looks like one of those Old Testament passages we look at and we say, what's all that about? One of those strange passages in the Bible, right? But Micah speaks of a hope, a dream, when everyone worships God and lives in peace with one another. So, question, obvious question, is when is that going to happen? Because we don't see that today. When, or did it already happen? Has this somehow already happened in Micah's time? Or is it something, this vision of hope, of a future, of peace, of people turning swords into plowshares, is it something that will happen in the future? 
Or is it something that started but will be completed in the future? Actually, all three of those, as we will see. Let's dig into this and ask, when we come to a passage like this, and particularly an Old Testament passage, we should always ask two questions. The same two questions. First of all, what did it mean for them? Secondly, what does it mean for us? What did it mean for them 800 years before Jesus, nearly 3,000 years ago? What did this word mean for them? And today in Lim, in 2019, what does it mean for us? Because if God's word is alive and active, as the writer to the Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts today, then this, but this passage will have something for us today. So first of all, what did it mean for them? Three things that it meant for them. First of all, that God's, God will somehow be lifted up. God's presence is lifted up as on a mountain. That's what Micah says. God's presence is lifted up. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. So God's presence is lifted up. And there's this picture of people going to God's presence, people saying, let's worship God and seek his ways. All people saying, let's worship God and seek his ways. And people living in a peaceful world. So first of all, the picture of God being lifted up among all nations, all, pe- all peoples. Second thing it meant for them, 800 years BC, is there's a new order. There's a new established order. Things are not as they were. There is worldwide peace. And God is arbitrating among his peoples. This is interesting. He, he will judge between many peoples. He will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So there's a new order, a new way of living. Nations living in harmony with each other. Weapons of death transformed to instruments of life. Tools that we used for killing are now used for cultivating. It's a transformation, a new order, a new way of living at peace with one another. So first, remember, God's presence is lifted up. Secondly, there's a new order. And thirdly, there's benefits for us. There are benefits for the people who are living in this time. It's a great time to live. Everyone will sit, says Micah in his language, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid. No more fear. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. It's a modest but contented lifestyle. Everyone enjoying the fruits of their own labor without fear. Not coveting each other's possessions but content with a modest lifestyle. So three things. God's presence is lifted up. There's a new order, a new way of living. That everyone's living at peace for some reason. And thirdly, there's a life, a peaceful, contented life to look forward to. Okay. Well, that all sounds very great and dandy, doesn't it? It all sounds lovely, but we don't see that happening again. Micah's people didn't, in, in, uh, in, in Israel, ancient Israel didn't see that happening. So here's the question. When does this happen? And here's... A really important point of a lot of Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled twice. A lot of Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled twice, which is remarkable. Uh, the prophecy has a double meaning. So first of all, 
This prophecy that Micah prophesied around 770, 780 BC was already fulfilled for ancient Israel. All those things came to pass because Israel was almost annihilated over the next two to three hundred years. The northern part of Israel uh, was invaded by a people we called the Assyrians. The Assyrians, their capital was Nineveh at the time. They invaded the northern part of Israel and scattered everybody. Blew them out of there, basically, around 721 BC. And then around 590 BC, until then, the southern part of kingdom was intact. What we call the remnant, Jerusalem, was still there. There was a smaller number of people living there. They called themselves Israel. But they also were invaded in 590 BC, this time by the Babylonians, who came from Babylon, or what we now know as Iraq. They invaded the southern kingdom and took them away into slavery. So it all came to pass. All the doom happened. But then, around 540 BC, the people, the Jews, are allowed to return to Jerusalem under Cyrus, the emperor. And you can read about it in Nehemiah and Ezra. They return to Jerusalem and they rebuild the city. They rebuild the city walls and they rebuild the temple. And suddenly they are in a time of peace and prosperity. Having learned the lessons of the past, they are restored. So Micah's prophecy has already happened. It's already come true. That's the first meaning of Micah's prophecy. But there's a second fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. Uh, In Micah 5, as we'll see soon, Micah talks about one from Bethlehem who will come, one whose origins are of old, a ruler. And the second fulfillment of Micah's prophecy is still happening. And he's saying in the last days of history, there will come a Messiah, one from Bethlehem, whose origins are of old. And in that time, from the time of Jesus onwards, there will be a more intense fulfillment, a more complete fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. So it's almost like the first fulfillment is like the starter, just a sign that God is saying, this is a picture of what what I'm going to do for all of you in the last days. And we are now in those days, in that time. In that time that we call the Christian hope. So let's turn to the second question then, which we are in now. So that's what it meant for them. And then we said there's this double meaning of prophecy where it applies for them, but it also applies for us. So what actually does it mean for us? What does Micah's prophecy really mean for us? Let's talk about this Christian hope. Or what I like to show is this, the daisy breaking through the concrete, the hope in hopeless situations where you least expect to find it. Micah was not only prophesying to ancient Israel, but his word applies to us and is a picture of our present and our future. The Christian hope was inaugurated, was started by the coming and and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, bringing hope into a world without hope. And this perhaps is the most important thing. The Christian hope is not about being hopeful. Okay, It's not like Charlie's hope, where he was hoping his pigeon would make it back from Rome. It's not like my hope that it might be sunny tomorrow. That's hopeful. It's not about being hopeful. Something happened when Jesus came. Something shifted in the heavenly realms. When Jesus' incarnation, he's coming as a baby, his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection, something changed 
Those events, those historical events changed history. So Christian hope is not about being hopeful that something will happen. It's about being certain that something has happened on a hill and it changed everything. Again, Christian hope is not about being hopeful that God might somehow remember us, that there might be a God, that something good might happen in the future, like Charlie's hope. It's not about being hopeful. Christian hope is about being certain that God has already done things. He's already done what he, what he set out to do. Christian hope is not about being hopeful that something might happen. It's about being certain that something happened on a cross, on a hill, 2,000 years ago, and it changed the course of our universe. So, <clears throat> let's look at what exactly do I mean. So I've talked about the Christian hope. If someone was to ask you, what is the Christian hope? What would we say? Well, there are different ways of talking about the Christian hope. Let me say it in, in three ways. <clears throat> and kind of reflecting back on Micah's hope for the people uh, of his day. Remember the first thing for ancient Israel was be that God would be lifted up. <clears throat> well, the first point to make <clears throat> about our hope, Christian hope, is that people will be lifted up. God will raise the dead. God will raise the dead. A lot of people struggle with that idea of how that connect. When you're dead, you're dead, right? How can a dead person be raised from the dead? Well, apart from the fact that we've already seen it happen, we know that God will. We take this seriously. We know that God will raise the dead because God is both all-powerful and all-loving. If he is all-powerful, he can raise the dead. He can do anything. He created life so he can restore life. And if he's all-loving, he will do that. If he's all-loving and he came into this universe as a baby because of love, then he will do that. So we, we, we take seriously the idea that God will raise the dead because he's all-powerful, he's able to do it, and he's all-loving, he will do it. And it is a central idea to the Christian hope that men and women from all ages will be raised from the dead for eternity is a central idea of the Christian hope, central tenet of our faith. God can do it because he's all-powerful and he will do it because he's all-loving. Secondly, just as the ancient prophecy for ancient Israel, there was a new order, wasn't there? There will be a new order. There will be a new order for us as well. The language of Christian hope is amazing when you go look at the, open the Bible and the Bible writers run out of words to try to describe what we call heaven, the kingdom of heaven. They run out of language. Christian hope is language stretched to its limits. It's everything that Micah said. There'll be no more wars, no more struggle, no more fear. In addition to that, it's God's final victory over evil, over death, over the devil, over everything that causes fear. But the language the Bible writers use, they struggle with the language, so they use metaphors instead. And so we have just many ideas in the Bible, Old Testament and New. So, for example, Isaiah describes it, he says, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The wolf will lie down with the cub. A place of eternal peace, he says. Jesus, in, in his uh, kingdom parables, says many things, but he says, it's, so, it's like a wedding feast. It's like a wedding feast. Everybody is invited. Not everybody comes, but everybody is invited. 
And in Revelation, the writer says, it's like a new city, a city that needs no light because God himself is the light. And in that city, there will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. The old things have passed. The new has come. There's a new order. These are metaphors rich in symbolism. Not literal. It won't literally be a wedding, but it's like that. There are, all, there are a lot of these uh, metaphors are communal as well. Have you noticed that? They're not usually individual. They're communal, the metaphors uh, of eternity. So we take them seriously, but don't take them over literally. Some people sometimes in the past have taken uh, Revelation and tried to use it like a trained timetable to say when, when things might happen. And that's always a mistake. We take it seriously, but not over literally. This is our hope, our Christian hope, based on the certainty of what God has already done. And then thirdly and lastly, what is the Christian hope? It was ushered in by the birth and death of Jesus. And we're in the time of year now where we start to think about uh, the birth of Jesus, Jesus' birth, and that's important. It's right to do that. But it's Jesus' death, actually, that makes hope real, that makes our Christian hope a reality. It's his death on a cross. See, it's not that uh, Jesus would have known the words that Micah spoke. He knew the words of Isaiah 61, you know. Um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to bring good news, to bind the brokenhearted. He knew those passages were about him. But it's not just that Jesus knew the prophecies, which he did. It's not that just that Jesus lived a good life, although he did live a perfect life. It's the fact that Jesus died in agony on a cross. And uh, we... The Christian hope is founded in the horror of a Roman execution. The Christian hope is founded in the horror of a Roman cross. Sometimes we gloss over that, don't we? And we have beautiful crosses that are nicely varnished, and they, and they look lovely, and we should have them. But we should remember, actually, that it was in Jesus' death, dying on a cross, dying alone, dying in pain, dying in agony, and dying for you, that our Christian hope is founded, that it was his love for you that made this happen. It was an agonizing death. And I don't know how you feel about hope today. I don't know if you're feeling down without hope today. But however you're feeling, know this, know this, that you have been loved that you have been deeply, deeply loved with a love that is the strongest force in our universe today. That you have been loved and hold that in your heart however you might feel about today or tomorrow. So lastly then, with this hope that we have, not hoping that something might happen, but knowing that something has happened, that God has done this, how then should we respond? How should we be as a people of hope? We should be bringers of hope, suppliers of hope, or as I've said here, purveyors of hope. Perhaps take those words into your tomorrow. Try and be a purveyor of hope, a supplier of hope. 
The universe is progressing to an eternal goal where all uh, men and women are invited and men and women from all ages will be raised from the dead. Christian hope, that is our eternal, our ultimate hope. But it's already started now. It already started when Jesus came. And sometimes we make the mistake of focusing hard on heaven and forgetting about today. And that's a mistake. We sometimes think um, eternity is something like God is going to meet us like at a distant airport. He's going to come and meet us. But God meets us today. God wants to meet you today and bring you that hope today. Right now, we are to be suppliers of hope in a hopeless world. And we are to support signs of hope where there are signs around us. Does anyone know what that is? It's the knife angel or the angel of knives. It's touring the country. It's about 10 foot tall. And it's in Chester Cathedral this month till the 30th of November. I'm going to go and see it. If you want to go and see it, let me know. Perhaps we'll, we'll go together. And it's what it is, it's 100,000 knives, kitchen knives, pen knives, uh, flick knives, machetes that have been confiscated by 43 police forces around the country. They were all instruments of violence. And talk about swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Here we've got knives into angels. It's a sign of hope in our land. There are signs of hope in our land, and we are to support them. Oops. Even Charlie had a surprise coming. I didn't play the rest of the song. Go and look it up on YouTube, The King of Rome. There is hope, even in this world. And we are to be spreaders of hope, bringers of hope, purveyors of hope, suppliers of hope. We should be signs of hope and support signs of hope around us. Hope starts now. Don't wait around for it to start. God wants to be, use you as an instrument of hope to bring you hope and to bring others hope through you today. We are to be bringers of hope into the situations we see around us of injustice, of poverty. We are to be bringers of hope and to be a sign of the eternal hope. We are to, as a people of hope, to dream new dreams, to motivate ourselves and those around us into situations of hope. And when we do that, we are bringing a sign of the eternal hope that God has for us, and as Micah told us almost 3,000 years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just pray today, Lord, that everybody here would know this, that you have been loved You have been loved deeply and powerfully. And with that love, Lord, we take hope, Father, and we have hope. So make us a people of hope, Father, in in our families, in our workplaces, in our streets, in whatever our tomorrow may bring. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.